Now we are going to enter back into the book of Hebrews and we here at Heritage, if you're new, we're a church that is passionate about lifting high God's word and explaining it, lifting high the person of Christ that are, we fix our eyes on him. And in these final days, when I mean final days, I mean we are in the final epoch or the epic of redemption history. The Bible calls this time the final days because the next event on the redemptive calendar is the return of Christ. And that is so exciting. We look forward to him coming back to make everything new and to make everything right. But in these final days, more than ever, it is critical that we preach and teach and live and explain the word of God and uphold the name of Christ in a world that has gone mad. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. Hebrews chapter 1 opens up with both an Old and New Testament theology that it's one and the same story. These are not two separate accounts, but one and the same story that God has spoken. We've been the last couple of weeks looking at an Old Testament survey, last week New Testament survey, and today we're going to look at a survey of the book of Hebrews and then come back into Hebrews 6 in about three weeks. Now, why the gap? Because next Sunday, one of our young men who's going to the nations is going to be preaching. You're going to be greatly blessed. And then we're going to have a prayer Sunday where we take the whole day and spend the time in prayer. And then I'm going to talk to you about mission, what God has called us to do as a church according to his word. And then for the rest of the fall, from early September on, we're going to go Hebrews 6, verse by verse, and continue on through the book of Hebrews. But one of the reasons we're taking this tangent of a survey is because Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, these are two whitewater sections that is the river, in the river that is Hebrews, that require careful navigation and caution because there is so much that we need to understand before we enter into these oft misunderstood passages. We've been looking at God's presence, that in the Old Testament God spoke his presence spoke himself to bless us with his presence. And the New Testament is that he has shown us himself in the person of Christ to bless us with his presence. The book of Hebrews picks up on that theme that Jesus is the one, the chosen one, who is able to bring us into God's presence. The Old Testament, beginning in Eden, was a place of blessing and presence place where God made himself known. And yet because of sin, mankind was excluded from the presence of God. The greatest aspect of judgment, the greatest aspect of our sin is the separation from God and the exclusion from the place of blessing, of access into God's presence. But God, because of his grace and goodness, made a promise that there'd be one who would bring us back in to all who believe in him. The tabernacle and the, te the temple were, were, were shadows, pictures of heavenly realities that on the basis of a sacrifice and by the work of a high priest, the door back into God's presence was, was pushed open slightly. But only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. 
until Jesus Christ, the great sacrifice, came down and offered himself once for all and the temple curtain was split in two. And on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, we can then enter all the way into the Holy of Holies. The Romans 5, that because we have been justified, made righteous by Christ, that we have been sanctified and made holy, that we can enter all the way in to the Holy of Holies of God. His presence came down in order to gift his presence so that we could enjoy his presence for all of eternity. According to Hebrews, Jesus is that one who blesses us with God's presence. But Hebrews is written really to answer two key questions. Number one, is Jesus qualified? Is he qualified? Is he credentialed? Is he, is he able to bring us into God's presence? Qualifications and credentials matter. I assume that if you're going in for heart surgery, you want your doctor to actually be a doctor and not a mechanic. You want to make sure that they know what they're doing, that they have the right or the ability to be there. Hebrews 1 asks the question, is he qualified? And then answers the question, is he qualified? The second thing that Hebrews brings out, it really asks the question, can you sample and taste Jesus and still be okay? Can you sit on the outskirts and play the game of religion? You students, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you're going to a Christian university and it is part of the popular culture here in Lynchburg to be a Christian and to look a certain way. And so we taste and we experience and we sit on the periphery, but we have never actually entered in. And the book of Hebrews says, beware you good religious church people. Like the Israelites who, who stood from a distance, saw God, but refused to enter in. And the judgment to such refusal after being exposed to so much grace is great. So the pastor here, whoever the author is of Hebrews, wants to show that Jesus Christ is qualified and superior, but also gives a warning. Do not play. With your faith. Do not play with religion. Enter all the way in by the work of Christ. You see, the book of Hebrews is written to, we presume, to Hebrews. Why? Because it gives a lot of explanation of Old Testament promises. It assumes that you know who Moses and Joshua and all of these people are. You see, the writers is cognizant that whoever the audience is, they are in danger of returning to the old covenant, an old covenant in which there had to be repeated sacrifices. In other words, that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not enough and that they had to somehow add to it, that they had to somehow complete it. And he wants to show, no, he's qualified. His work is done. His work is completed. You're to rest in that. But in our modern culture and sensibility, we have a Christ plus culture. In the 1950s and the 1960s, in the height of fundamentalism and legalism, it was the Christ plus look a certain way on the exterior. In our modern sensibilities in the 2010s and the 2020s, the Christian is the Christ plus being activistic about the right causes. 
and we have to add to or we work for in order to complete or to, to find our final security in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews talks about that if we are in Christ and he has completed the work, that when he said on the cross, it is finished, we can take rest that it is finished. It's done. Now that is not license then to sin impetus to be holy. Now let's talk about the book of Hebrews and there's some very key themes that we find within this book. There are themes of a spatial theology of understanding that God came down to be with us and he makes a space available through the sun so that we might draw near to the presence of God. The book of Hebrews again teaches us about the supremacy of Christ. That Jesus is our high priest. That the Old Testament is completed in Christ. He is the fulfillment and the completion of all the promises. That we are to have faith in God's promises. And that obedience and endurance are evidence of true faith. Obedience and endurance do not save you, but they are the evidence of true faith. Now, in walking through Hebrews, we are going to walk through the entire book. But I want to do this not, not in a point-by-point -point way, but rather I just want to converse the book of Hebrews with you. What do I mean by that? A conversation is made up of asking questions, having discussion, or wrestling, and then making statements, and then also challenge to understand, to grow, to move forward. So I want to converse with you around this question of Jesus as the promised one who brings us into the presence of God. And the first question is this, and I'm not going to number every question or statement. We're just going to walk and flow with the text, but I'll tell you where we're at. We're starting in chapter 1. And the question that chapter 1 asks first about this Jesus who brings us into the presence of God, the question is, well, is he qualified? Does he have the right credentials? So Hebrews chapter 1 begins with a grand Christology and says, you want to know if he's qualified? Well, listen to who this Jesus is. He is the heir of God, the creator of the universe, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation. When you see Jesus, you see God. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power and holds all the molecules together and the cosmos together, microsecond to microsecond by his sheer omnipotence. He is a priest who has gone in on our behalf, but he's also a king whom the angels worship. Chapter 1, verse 6. He is the one who has a throne that never ends. Verse 8. He loves righteousness. He loves goodness. He is in every way powerful so that at his word, he will roll up the universe at the appointed time, just like one changes his clothes. He's going to roll it up, make it all new. He is the one who reigns forever. His years have no end. He is superior in every way to everything and superior to the greatest and the mightiest and the most glorious of angels. Is he qualified? Is there anyone better qualified? So Hebrews 1 opens up with, who is this Jesus? Be careful that your Jesus is too small to handle COVID or too small to bring beauty out of the ashes that is the unfolding tragedy of Afghanistan. 
If Jesus can bring beauty and make the symbol of the cross beautiful out of the ashes of what crucifixion actually was, if he can bring beauty out of that kind of tragedy and brokenness, then our Jesus, our God, according to his word, is able and sufficient to do anything and everything. This is a glorious grand Jesus. Is he qualified? In every way. So chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, you better not neglect such a great salvation. Don't drift. Pay attention. One of the greatest marks of evangelicalism today is a slow drift away from the centrality of Christ, a slow drift from the preaching of God's word, a drift into felt needs and psychological preaching instead of expositional preaching, and so that you walk away feeling good about yourself, but with little knowledge about who God is. Be careful that you drift from this great salvation accomplished by the Son, Jesus Christ. The angelic messages throughout history have proved true. How much more the Son who now speaks. Now the book of Hebrews is marked by argument of escalation. Argument of escalation. Constantly saying, if this, how much more now in Christ? If God worked this way and it was significant and sufficient, how much more the work of his Son? Pay attention and don't neglect. But how is God going to take care of human sin? Chapter 2, verse 5 to 18. Well, here we see the humanity of Christ. God descended in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. Jesus entered into our realm. And you need to understand that God gave mankind at creation a royal identity, to co-reign with him. But because of sin, we forsook that birthright. The only one who can make that birthright active again, who can restore us into God's presence, is a human. A human has to be able to take care of human sin. And so Jesus became in the flesh human. And at the cross, he suffered and died. And at the cross, all who believe and trust in him, their royal identity is restored. And that is why Paul in Ephesians 1 says that we will one day, what? Reign with him. That we are in effect, even right now, reigning with him in the heavenlies. It's the restoration of the Edenic blessing. And Jesus enters into our world. Verse 14, verse 18. As a man to restore our royal identity by partaking in our flesh. Verse 14 of chapter 2. And that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, Satan. And then deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He was made like us in every respect, but he proved a merciful and faithful high priest to satisfy the wrath of God, to make propitiation for our sins. You know, verse 14 to verse 18, what a wonderful gospel summary. 
God became flesh. He suffered in the flesh in order to free us from the bondage of sin and Satan. And through his death, he satisfied the wrath of God so that he as the high priest might enter in on our behalf and bring us in and meet our needs and grow us into the glory that awaits us. You want to know how to share the gospel? Look at verse 14 to verse 18. Chapter 3. Therefore, Consider Jesus. This one who is qualified, don't neglect him, who takes care of humanity's sin, consider him. The one who is the high priest and the apostle, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And this is really the thesis of all of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. The sent one, the holy one sent on our behalf, clothed in the flesh, a mediator that is superior to Moses. You know, Moses stood in the gap between the people and God. And Moses really was a shadow of the great mediator who would come, the great high priest who would stand in the gap between the people and God, Jesus who would bridge the gulf and speak on our behalf. Consider him who's done great things for us. But warning, chapter 3, verse 7 to 19, beware seeing, but not believing. Beware being like the Israelites who saw Egypt, who saw Sinai, who saw the Red Sea crossing and the very power of God, but they stood at a distance. They wanted to admire and kind of enjoy the fringe benefits of that distant God, but their hearts never entered in. They never Believe. Played the game of religion where they said, We're close enough. I want to enjoy the warmth of other people's faith, but I'm not going to go all the way in. And because of unbelief, they were denied entry into the place of promised rest, the place where God would make himself known in a special way. Beware that we're, we may look on the outside like an Israelite. We may go to the sacrifices. We may go to the religious services. We may do all of these things, but ultimately in their hearts, they did not believe God. They did not believe his promises. And as a result, unbelief, that is the reason they were denied entry. It wasn't because they were imperfect. It wasn't because that they struggled with different things. They did struggle with all these things, and including their own sin. What barred them from entry was their unbelief. And their unbelief showed itself in sin and breaking God's law. Is that it? Does the offer to enter God's rest still stand? And the answer in chapter 4 is yes. God promised rest at the beginning of creation when he rested on the seventh day. Joshua prefigured rest when he led the people into the promised land, but that was just a shadow, a type, looking forward to an eternal rest, a land, a place that could never be taken away. God's promises, what God's promises are sure. And if we believe, then we can enter that Sabbath rest. But if you do not believe and you just play the game, you will never enter his rest. Never enter the rest of his presence in heaven. This Jesus is a great high priest. 
Then how do we enter his presence? Verse 14 of chapter 4, because he passed through the heavens like the high priest passed it through the outer courts and the inner courts into the holy of holies. Jesus didn't pass through an earthly temple, but passed through the heavenly temple. And he went in and offered his own blood on the ark of the covenant, as it were, on the mercy seat of God. The curtain was torn in two and now the high priest comes back out and says, you once could not go in, but by virtue of my sacrifice, come all the way into the Holy of Holies with me. He brings us into God's presence. What kind of high priest though is this Jesus, you may ask? Well, chapter five teaches us. He's a high priest that's been appointed. A high priest whose character is one of gentleness. He is a high priest that truly is humble in heart, that has been proven perfect by his suffering, a high priest whose character is unimpeachable, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But wait, stop, hold on a minute, because are you ready to hear about this? Do you want to hear about this? Because the writer here says, before I go any further, I am concerned that you've become dull of hearing. I am concerned that, that you're playing the game, that you're just going through the motions and that you become dull of hearing. Christ and his word does not excite you. It does not enliven you. You want to be coddled in your faith instead of grow up in your faith. You want the milk of the word instead of the meat of the word. So the writer says, are you really serious about your faith? Because in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, you need to grow up. You need to mature. Some of you, yes, are babes in the faith, and that's okay. As long as you don't stay there. Grow. Leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and grow up to maturity. But you may ask, but wait a moment, can't I just sit on the sidelines a little bit? Can't I just taste and sample Jesus from the safety of my comfort zone? And the answer, according to chapter 6, is a strong, absolute no. Those who just taste and sample and sit on the fringes are in danger of the very judgment and condemnation of God. Can I lose my salvation, you may ask? That is not what chapter 6 teaches. And I'm going to show my cards, right? But in chapter 6, it also says this is how we can have assurance of our salvation. That by God's promises and his very character, he will keep you and persevere you to the very end. Now you say, wait, hold on. I still have questions about who this high priest is. About, about, about Jesus' qualifications. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring out. Is he a qualified high priest? We know he's qualified according to chapter 1 in his divinity, but is he qualified in the office of high priest? Does he have the right lineage? And the writer says, yes, after Melchizedek, chapter 7. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, a king of peace. And like Christ, he continues a priest forever. In other words, his priesthood never ended. And like that, Jesus' priesthood never ends. And as a result, Jesus is the guarantor of a better promise, a better covenant than the Aaronic or the Aaron's priesthood. 
But who, who will make sure her salvation lasts, again, you ask? Because the priests died. They would do their work, offer sacrifice, and then they passed off the scene and, and someone else had to pick up their work. So once Jesus passes off the scene, as it were, who will continue on after Jesus? Chapter 7, verse 24 says this. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, who's going to continue on the ministry of Jesus? The answer is Jesus. Why? Because he is eternal. He never dies. He is powerful. In other words, the very might of chapter one in his being and character, he for all of eternity upholds your salvation by the very omnipotence of the triune God. And nothing can take that away. That's why Jesus kind of said in John 10, almost like a, I dare you of anybody to try and take them out of my hand. You can't. Romans 8, God before us who can be against us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Chapter 8, you may say, but wait, hold on. How is Jesus' work better than what the priest did in the old covenant? Chapter 8 teaches us, not that the Old Testament covenant failed, but no, the law and the temple and the tabernacle, these were shadows pointing to Christ, pointing to a new covenant that would come, that would never end, that would never fail. So, so what did Jesus actually accomplish then? Chapter 9 says, well, let's, let's describe what he actually accomplished. You see, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple what they did is they functioned as shadows or representations. They were earthly representations of heavenly realities. That we get glimpses in the book of Hebrews that there is a heavenly holy of holies. The very dwelling place of God. And that according to chapter 9, Jesus did not enter into an earthly tabernacle or temple through the blood of goats and calves, chapter 9, verse 12, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He went into the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. And if the blood of the bulls and the goats could satisfy God's wrath for a time, chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? If the Old Testament could do it in part, how can the very blood of God in Christ, how much more sufficient is that? And if it could be done on an earthly altar, how much more the blood of the eternal God offered on the heavenly altar in heaven. So is there anything else that needs to be done then? No, chapter 10 says that Christ's sacrifice is once and for all. You see, the priest in the Old Testament stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. They did it day in, day out 
It never could take away sin. It was a, it, it was a, a pointer. It, it was a mediary until the final sacrifice in Christ. But they had to stand daily. In other words, keep doing it. But verse 12, but when Christ, in chapter 10, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. You see, the priest stands daily because his work is never finished. Jesus went to the cross, said, it is finished, and sat down. It's done. No other work needs to be accomplished. What he did is sufficient, final, and complete. You cannot add to the work. And as a result of his work in verse 19 of chapter 10, we can confidently enter God's presence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can draw near with a true heart. Oh, but brothers and sisters, verse 26 to verse 31, perhaps one of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture. If this is everything that Jesus has done for you, beware seeing, sampling, and then trampling Christ, and I quote, outraging the spirit of grace, verse 29. Beware. The free grace movement of evangelicalism that says that, yeah, yeah, God loves and it doesn't matter and don't, you just kind of do your own thing as long as you've said that prayer, you're good and, and it doesn't matter how you live. It's this free grace movement of there's no cons. The Bible teaches something opposite the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ is so costly. We do not treat it lightly, but rather we honor the sacrifice and we reverence who our God is by living holy lives, by honoring one another in our marriages and relationships. And we so distinguish Christ by our conduct that we uphold his glory for all to see. Beware the church who would trample and outrage the spirit of grace that says, ah, it's just a, you know, it doesn't matter. So how then do I wait for God to bring the promise of his presence? How do we wait and walk this life? Chapter 11, you do it by faith one day at a time. How do we wait for God to complete and finalize and, and hold on to what we've been taught? One day at a time. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Moses. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Seth. By faith, all of these saints. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. Interesting that she's called Rahab the prostitute. It wasn't her prostitution that kept her out of heaven. Not to say that prostitution is okay. That's a sin, right? Any type of sexuality outside of marriage is a sin. But we have Rahab the prostitute by faith, even though that was her past, even though that was something that she was, by God's grace she had been transformed and it was not because she was a good person, but it's because she trusted in a good God. By faith. One day at a time, one year at a time, sometimes decades at a time, walking and waiting for God to make himself known through Christ. So brothers and sisters, chapter 12, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Many have gone before us, but look to Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him. 
Now we get weary in the fight. We get weary in the fight, but keep going. Chapter 12 teaches us. Endure. Look to the unshakable kingdom that is coming. Chapter 12, verse 38, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know what? The kingdoms of this world are in the process of being shaken, aren't they? There are no tremors in heaven. That kingdom cannot be shaken, can never be taken away. Chapter 13. So what does the Lord ask of me? Live out the presence of God in your daily life. Live out what Jesus has done for you. Let brotherly love continue. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Recognize that the sexually immoral and the adulterous will be judged. Remember your leaders. Offer up a sacrifice, verse 15, of praise to God in everything that you do. Give the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 20 of chapter 13. You may ask, well, will I make it to the end? On the very character of God of verse 21, he will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He will work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. And Jesus will receive all the glory. God's grace will be with you. He will give you what you need and he will give you what you do not deserve. We have a great God who is more than qualified. So hold on, be steadfast and endure because in the end, it's worth it. Hebrews is a good book, isn't it? Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for this morning and this time in your word. May you be honored and glorified as we continue our journey. May we walk this life holding on to what Christ has accomplished. And I pray if there is someone here who's playing the game or has never trusted, your word says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I pray that they would make that decision to follow you today. May all of us walk in the light of the presence of God until that one day when our faith shall be made sight and we shall see you in your unveiled glory. We pray all these things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.